Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We're going to be looking this morning at the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. And so I'll begin reading at verse uh, 7. I'll read to verse 13, and we'll get into our study. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, reading to verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we lift up this study to you, and I do pray that it is rightly divided and properly presented. May our hearts be open to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, as I have previously been stating, each letter that we've been looking at, the seven letters to seven churches, each of these letters have at least three applications. Let me remind you. The primary, which means that the the letter has a direct bearing on the specific churches that are being mentioned. It has the personal, meaning that each church has people present at that time We need to hear what the Spirit has to say. And then it has the third application, the prophetic. The prophetic speaks of representing seven stages of the life of the body of Christ throughout its history. So as we've gone through the churches, we've seen certain things about them. We looked at Ephesus, the church from the apostolic age to 160 AD, a church leaving its first love. We looked at Smyrna, the church from 160 to 312, the church under persecution. We looked at Pergamos, the church from 313 to 600, 
the compromising church. We looked at Thyatira, the church from 600 to 1500, the church in apostasy. And then we looked at Sardis from 1500 to 1750, the church of dead orthodoxy. Today we get an opportunity to look at the church of Philadelphia, the church that is the faithful church. Now let me give you a background so that we can look at this passage together with some understanding. The origin of the Church of Philadelphia is unknown. It may have been founded during Paul's ministry at the city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, 8 through 10, it reads, He, Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So we know that Philadelphia was in that region, and that's why some believe that Paul may have influenced its, its origin. Now the city of Philadelphia was located around 30 miles or so southeast of the city of Sardis. It was named after a king of Pergamos, a man by the name of Attalus Philadelphus. He built the city in 189 B.C. Because it was situated in a fertile region, it was known for its agriculture, especially for its grapes. It was at a junction of several trade routes. It became known as the gateway to the east. As a result of its grape production, it was also known for its wine. And the Greek god of wine, Dionysus, was one of the chief objects of pagan worship. Prophetically, Philadelphia represents the faithful bride of Christ through the ages. Philadelphia is the last days church, living during a period of lukewarm indifference. Like the letter to Smyrna, not a single word of condemnation is found in this particular letter. And so we'll be looking today, carrying, with, carrying in the interpretation the prophetic application also. Beginning at verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the angel being the messenger, also regarded as the pastor. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So he begins by referring to himself as the one who is holy and the one who is true. This speaks of Jesus Christ. He's holy in his life. And he's true in his teaching. Jesus is holy in life. Now when we use the word holiness, many people may not know what that word actually means biblically. Holiness by definition speaks of being separated. Being separated from that which is unclean. That which is religiously profane. Holiness speaks of being free and separated from defilement. In Hebrews 7.26 it speaks of Jesus and it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who could challenge people who were standing in front of him to find sin in him. In John 8, 46, he asked the question, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, anybody in this room, beginning with me, could walk up to somebody who knows him well. I could speak to Marie, and she could be speaking to me, and I can say, no way, convict me of sin. Then I'd have to sit down for a couple months as she does one after another. 
Well, with Jesus, he asked that question, which of you can convict me of sin? And not a single person could do so because he is perfect. He's sinless. Mark records how when Jesus was in a synagogue, a demonized man spoke to him. It's recorded in Mark 1.24. And it says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? And he went on to say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so why would he identify himself in this way? He, he does so because holiness is what is called an essential attribute of God. Concerning God's holiness, the Bible is filled with scripture revealing that attribute. In the book of Habakkuk, in chapter 1, verse 13, the writer said, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, cannot look on wickedness. In Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, it says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. You shall be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. I am separate. I am undefiled. And he's saying, you shall be holy also. So as a holy God, he is unblemished. He's perfect. He's flawless. He's separate from sin. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. So this attribute is something that has been obscured, I think, in today's church. Many pastors focus on God's grace, but they don't emphasize his holiness. Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God made it clear that that couldn't happen. In Exodus 33:20, he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. When Isaiah had his vision of the Lord, he was overwhelmed by what he saw. Isaiah 6, verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. God is holy, and Jesus is describing himself in the same way. You see, when Jesus claims his quality, he is claiming to be God. And this is something that the apostle Thomas recognized about him. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The New Testament reveals Jesus as being holy, being set apart. In 1 John 3, 5, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So Jesus begins by identifying himself as the one who is holy. And then he refers to himself as the one who is true. He's saying, I am the one who is true in contrast to that which is false. So that refers to what is called his moral being, his essential nature. As the one who is true, he is the one who originates truth. In other words, truth begins and ends in Jesus Christ. It begins in him and not in false religions or false religious leaders. That's because Jesus by nature is the truth. In John 7, 18, it says, He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. In 1 John 5, 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so he speaks of himself as being holy. He speaks of himself as being true. In verse 7, he also goes on to say he has the key of David. He opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So when Jesus says that he has the key of David, he's saying, I hold the office of Messiah. 
Later on in chapter 22, verse 16, he'll say, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So he's holding the key of David. What does that represent? The key of David represents absolute sovereignty. It's similar to Revelation 1.18 when he said, I am he who lives, was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and of death. A key opens doors. It grants access. Jesus has authority over who enters the kingdom. And the way you enter into the kingdom isn't by trying hard, producing good works, going to church, being religious. The way you enter in is through Jesus Christ who opens the door. In Acts 4.12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Muhammad, Buddha, no other name. There's only one name, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's the name of Christ that people bow down to. There is no other name. And he makes that clear. And he goes on. And he says in verse 8, I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. I, I know your works. He commends them. He's aware of their sincere service to him. He has seen their good works. And good works, we need to remember as believers, is an earmark of our, our essential faith. Our good works demonstrate that we know the true God. We produce good works because it reveals faith. We're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through Jesus Christ and faith. But we produce good works and, and we keep the commands of God. It's like what it says in John 14, 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We've been saved. And because we've been saved, we can actually produce good works. We've been saved, and it's been made possible. Before we got saved, our works were tainted by self-interest. But after we get saved, we, we produce good works because it's the fruit of the Spirit and because we love Him. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. But again, before we were saved, we may have works, but they're tainted with self-interest. That's why Paul in Philippians 2 verse 3 said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Don't do anything through selfish interest. You see, when we came to Christ, we performed good works out of love. And because we love him, Jesus rewards us. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So we came and performed good works because we came to Christ and God rewards us. He also goes on to say, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. No matter how hard men try to silence you, you will remain productive. He says, I give you an open door for ministering my message, and this would include worldwide. Right now, we have between 35 and 45 foreign countries that are tuning in to our to our, uh, our our uh, Bible study this morning. We have various states in the United States that people are watching right now. I get letters from people in other states who are watching our program and telling me to shut up, so I'm not going to. <laughs> Just messing around. But they are. They're listening. So he's saying, I'm giving you an open door. I, I give you an opportunity. Um, and, and the word can go forth. 
and it can go forth worldwide. And they were not pushing the door open. I want you to notice that. He said, I'm giving you an open door. He was opening the doors for them. You see, in some people's quest for importance or attention, they may attempt to force the door open. That will never result in glory to God. But it results in glory to the person who is doing the pushing. So what we need to do is we need to pray and seek the Lord to open the door. And then when the door opens, then we walk in. It's like what it says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, how Paul said, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, he, went, he said in chapter 16, verse 9, a great and effective door has opened to me. There are many adversaries. A, a door is a door of opportunity. And he's saying that he's opening up these doors. And God is in control. God desires people to be saved. God moves to promote this. So what we do is we submit our plans to God, and then we watch him as he moves the obstacles out of the way. It's like what it says in Proverbs 16, 3, commit to the Lord whatever you do, your plans will succeed. And so we present to him our ideas. Lord, I want to do this on your behalf. I don't want to gain a name or fame by it. I simply want Jesus' name to be known. And so he takes notice of those things. Now notice they have three qualities that he has noted. First, they have little strength. When he says you have little strength, that means that they're fully dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're small in number, but they have a great impact on the city. Many of the members of the church there in Philadelphia may have been poor. They undoubtedly came from what would have been called the lower social class. But in spite of the smallness of the congregation and the financial stress, Jesus says, you're strong. A second thing is they have kept his word. That word kept means to guard or protect from loss or injury. You have guarded my word. You have protected my word. They didn't distort the word of God. They didn't dispute the word of God. They didn't dilute the word of God. They did not replace the word of God, and they did not ignore the word of God. They faithfully kept it, and they defended it. They defended it from false teachers. They knew that false teachers would twist the word of God, and they closely guarded it. And that's something Paul was very aware of. That's something Paul himself knew very well. You see, in the church of Philippi, there were teachers who had arisen who desired to draw attention to themselves. They were preaching the gospel, but they were adding to it. They were changing it to suit themselves. They wanted to draw people away from Paul. They wanted to cause Paul pain. And Paul speaks of that in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 1, 15 through 17, he said, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. He said, there are people preaching the gospel intending to cause me pain. He said, knowing I've been set for the defense, that word defense in the original is, is ap apologia, the apologetic. You see, I have been set to defend the gospel with apologetics, to preach the truth, to contrast the false with what is true so that people will see the difference. And so the Philadelphian church guarded the word of God. They preserved it faithfully. And that's what we're supposed to do as believers, by the way. 
As a pastor, that is my obligation. That's what I've been called to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, uh, a letter to Pastor Timothy, Paul said, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Guard it, protect it, preach it, hold fast to it, and don't allow people to intimidate you into being silenced about it. Any pastor worth his salt who's really called has one person that he needs to realize he answers to, and that is to God himself. There will always be people who don't like what you said. But you know what? I'm not supposed to preach to tickle people's ears. I'm supposed to preach to cause God pleasure so that I one day will hear him say, well done, my good, my faithful servant. And that's what God calls us to do. And that's what I'll do. That is the, that is the chief desire of my heart every time I open the word of God. Every time. I want to make sure to rightly divide the word of truth. And there are always people who differ, people who, who disagree. And what, I, what they disagree with, they have a right to. Just go home, read your Bible, then you'll agree with me. That's how it works. <laughs> because what we try to do is divide the word. And that's what the church is supposed to do. Not only the pastor, but the body of Christ is to do that. Because the word of God has been entrusted to us. You see, the way some are afraid of offending sensitive hearers will actually result in the message being diluted. When we look at the whole counsel of God, we will, we will see its, its blessings, but we also will see the warnings. And the church, not just the pastor, is to hold fast to truth. And to present it as it is. In the book of Jude, verse 3, we read, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The word contend is where you get the word agonize. Agonize, contend to the point of blood for the faith the faith is that faith that is one time for all time been delivered to us that is encapsulated in what is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they are to, we are to contend for this faith. Why? It has been entrusted to us. You see, as we go through Revelation, we will get a picture of what happens in the last days. And we're being prepared for those days. When, when asked what the primary sign of the return of Jesus is, Jesus made it clear, this is the primary sign. He said in Matthew 24, take heed that you are not deceived. The primary sign of the last days is failure to guard God's word through sloppy teaching. And the result is deception as the church is infiltrated by false teachers leading sheep astray. All you need to do is read various books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, and you'll see this. Read Matthew 24. Read 1 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 2. Read the warning in Acts 20, 29 through 30. 
where Paul says men will rise up from amongst you and others will come in from the outside to lead you astray. You see, the mark of a genuine believer, one who is being commended by Christ, is always going to be obedience. In 1 John 2, 4 and 5, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth's not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. Hereby, we know that we are in him. You keep his word, it's a demonstration that he's your Lord. And a third thing in verse 8, you have not denied my name. When he says you have not denied my name, you have not departed from me. They made professions of faith and lived openly for Christ. And they never departed from him, nor did they ever deny him. This is the last day's church. It's the church from the time of the actual writing throughout the ages. We, we openly live for Jesus Christ. We don't depart from him and we don't deny him. During that day, pressure was great for them to compromise, to water down the word of God. But they refused to do so. They remained strong. They were open about their faith in him. I think the church today in these last days needs to wake up to that again, don't you? I think the church needs to be more open about what we believe because there are a lot of closet Christians today, people who believe but don't speak about it. Well, in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. When I was in college as a young man and a young believer, I would pray before college classes because I was going to secular school, uh, a non-Christian college. And uh, as I went to these schools, as I went to class, I would pray. I would say, Father, before I went, Father, help me to be open in my witness for you. Help me not to hide this light under a basket. Help me not to be ashamed. Help me to be open and identified with you. And I would go to class that way. As a young man who, who had very little education, I was trying to obtain some, but I didn't have much education. I didn't read books or anything. When I, when I was 15, I started drinking. I started doing drugs early, too. And I did that for years. And as a result of that, I didn't read. I barely graduated out of high school. I, I went into the military, came out, and, 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 and I'm still really uneducated. And now I want to go to college. And, and I started going to Biola, which is a Christian university. I went for a year. Then I dropped out and went to some, some JCs and other colleges and all. And, and uh, I went to a lot of non-Christian colleges. And, and I asked the Lord, when I would go to class, I'd say, Lord, today I may have an opportunity to talk about you. Help me not to say things that are incorrect. And Lord, help me to be able to have the courage to speak when given the opportunity. And I believe that that's what we're all supposed to do. I wasn't a pastor at that time. I wasn't pastoring a church at that time. I was a young man, 23, 24, 25 years old. I didn't know much. I was just learning like anybody else. But I would pray and I'd say, God, uh, your word says open. If I open my mouth, you will fill it. You have said in your word that, that, it, that I'm supposed to speak in your defense, in your, in your name, and that it be the spirit of your father who speaks through me. Lord, I've read your word. I'm studying your word. May it come out in class. And I was willing to, and I did. And yes, I was mocked. And yes, people made fun of me. And yes, people said things to me. But guess what? Their souls were more important than my feelings. And I wanted them to know the Lord. 
And I think the church is asleep to that today. We are very, very closeted in our beliefs. I'm not saying we should be belligerent, and I'm not saying go stand on a street corner and scream at people. What I'm saying is know the word and be ready. Like Isaiah said, here am I, Lord. Send me. I want to be used by you. I want to be used by Jesus Christ. And that's what these people were. This Philadelphian church was open to the things of the Lord. And they confessed Jesus Christ openly. And there are people today who are ashamed to identify. Well, there's a threat of violence. We're seeing it today. A threat of violence. Even when it comes to political things, you believe a certain thing and people get angry at you. They also get angry at you for your religious faith. But guess what? There is a way to speak so that you can speak in a way that is loving and truthful and you pray the Lord's protection. And, and I've done it so many times. I've done it long before I was in, in this pulpit. I, I'd be talking to somebody. They'd be saying something. I'd be listening. I'm showing them respect to hear them. But I'd be praying and I'd say, Lord, give me an answer. Help me to speak. Help me to share. They need to know Jesus Christ. Help me to have a heart for these people, Lord. And that's why the Lord placed me in a pulpit so that I could encourage all of us to the same thing, that you talk about Jesus Christ, not be ashamed of him. He's the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, and we will speak his name, and that's what Christians do. That's what we do. We're not in a popularity contest. We're just telling the truth. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Like in Smyrna, they were facing hostile opposition from unbelieving Jews. They were racially and culturally and ceremonially Jewish, but they weren't spiritually Jewish. Today, they might be called non-observant Jews. That's a word that is used in Israel. We'll meet people there and they'll say, well, they're non-observant. They're people who are, who are racially but not spiritually tied in. Well, Paul in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29 said it like this. He said, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, in Israel, unbelieving Jews were often the greatest persecutors of the church. From very early in the history of the church, Jewish opposition grew. The greatest persecutor of the church was a young Jewish rabbi by the name of Saul. He said in Acts 22, verse 4, as he was giving his testimony, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Saul became the apostle Paul. Jewish opposition and persecution went beyond the borders of Israel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, it reads, For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. 
In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. But in spite of such hostility, God was pleased to save some of them. Notice in verse 9 how he says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Jesus says that some of the Jews who were so very hostile would worship. Now the word worship is a word that speaks of bowing down. To bow at someone's feet is to show surrender. It speaks of them being humbled. The faithfulness of the church will result in some of its enemies to come to faith in Christ. Some of the Jews rejecting Jesus would receive him. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And that's what we as believers know. And that's, again, one of the reasons that we take this gospel and share it with people. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. And so we share the love of Christ with people. We tell them who Jesus is. We are that faithful church of the last days, holding fast to the things of God and proclaiming his truth. He says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Notice how he says, I will keep you from the great trial, which shall come upon the whole earth. That word from in the original language has a literal translation of out of. I will keep you out of the great trial, which shall come. Now, this promise isn't just to the church at that time. It's, it's a promise to the church. It applies to all faithful churches. And the promise is to keep the church from going through this great tribulation, this tribulation. It's the hour of trial. It's an hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. It's an hour of trial that is going to test every living person. And the promise that he's keeping us out of this, the promise to keep us out of it, is called the rapture, the rapture of the church that comes before the tribulation. And when you read your Bibles, you'll see there are passages that relate to it. You see in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus makes that promise that he says, I will come and receive you unto myself. You see it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, where he says, you shall not all, all sleep. Um, speaking of how he's going to come and it's going to be a, an amazing immediate changing in the twinkling of an eye. You see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ comes for the church. And so as you look at the promise, there are three aspects that we'll look at. One, notice the time of testing is still in the future. Also, the time of testing has a limited time. He calls it the hour of testing. And notice that it's coming upon the whole world, testing all who dwell on the earth. So this is a time of testing of those who dwell on the earth, and that refers to the unbelievers. You're going to see this as we move on in Revelation, and we get into chapters 8, 11, 13, and 14, as well as chapter 17. We'll be seeing that. So the emphasis of this is that Jesus keeps them from or out of this great trial. He doesn't say through the tribulation. He says out of the tribulation. And the tribulation we'll be looking at in chapters 6 through 19. Now, this great tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb. 
Jesus will inflict his wrath upon Christ-rejecting Jews as well as unbelieving Gentiles. But he isn't going to do that to the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers will be kept from the hour of trial through the rapture of the church. I'm looking forward to that. How about you? I'm looking forward to that, where the Lord is going to take us to be with them. I learned about this event called the rapture when I first got saved. I've mentioned to you already that I had never heard of such an event. But when I first got saved, because I went to uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck and Lonnie Frisbee would speak concerning this event. And I began to, to see it and, and I began to believe it. I began to realize that, that it's going to happen. And I actually started to, to live like in anticipation because we were taught it could be at any moment. It's just, God will say, come up here, and we go. And I began to live like that as a brand-new Christian. I can remember there was a, an earthquake that happened uh, February 9th, 1971, before many of you were born. And I had gone to a Bible study in, and, uh, at Costa Mesa, and I had heard of this event of the rapture and, and signs of the times and and, you know, as a, as a 20-year-old hippie kid, you know, I already was aware of e ecology, ecological disasters, the things that were going on and all. And so I had heard a Bible study where they had said, it had been said, there'll be earthquakes. And I still remember I was laying in bed, and, and early in the morning, the house began to shake. I was living in Norwalk, and the house began to shake, and it began to move in a, a very, very great way it was a, a strong earthquake and uh, I had just heard the night before that earthquakes were part of the signs of the times I still remember laying there at the age of 20 and the, my bed was shaking and raising my hands up like that saying all right let's go I actually thought we were about to leave and we didn't February 9th I remember that because that's my wife's birthday February 9th yeah, so I've always remembered that, that I got all shook up when I met her. <laughs> but I was taught to live in anticipation of it. I was taught to live as if Jesus was coming at any time. And he is. And they say, well, guess what, man? He hasn't come yet. It's just one day closer to when he does. And I want to be ready for that moment in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that's why we're excited about that. That's why. Because we're going to be with him. And Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. That no one takes it. You've been faithful. Continue holding on. The crown is the crown of eternal life. It's given to those who faithfully endure to the end. In James 1.12 it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. Uh, you will be identified completely with him. Notice how he says, I will make him a pillar. A pillar is a permanent resident. You're going to stand when others fall. You will never again be exposed to temptation and trials of this present life. You have a permanent residence in the presence of God. He says, I'll write on him the name of my God. When he says, I'll write on him the name of my God, that represents ownership. You will be identified with him. You have his name. You have the name of his city. You have this new name. This new name reveals the greatness of who Jesus is. We will see him as he is. We will glorify him with more precision. He is the one who makes us new. He is the one who makes all things new. And because we committed our hearts to him and because we follow him, we will live for him and we await him and we're excited to see him. And one day we will kneel before him, throw our crowns before him and worship him for eternity. And at that time, not a single one of us will regret one day that we lived on earth following him. For it all ends up in the glory of Jesus Christ. And we will one day say, I was yours. I belong to you and I will be with you forever. And I will worship you with all the host of heaven for you are great. And you have been great to me. Jesus, I love you. One of these days, we will together sing to the glory of God. And that because we belong to him, we'll be a pillar, a permanent resident. We have that new name, the name that reveals the greatness of who Jesus is. We'll see him as he is, and we glorify him for what he is. We have been made brand new because of Christ. And we will be with him forever. And let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.